You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, recently I had a conversation with one of my buddies. He's kind of a, a truck nut, a car nut, and he told me that Interstate Batteries makes, from a technical standpoint, some of the best car batteries on the market, period, hands down. Not only that, but they have thousands of retail locations all over the United States, so stop in to a local retail store, ask the guy who works there about their car batteries, and hell, you might as well put one in if they're the best in the business. So interstatebatteries.com is their website. Go there, find out more information about the culture of the company, the batteries that these guys carry, or just stop into a, a local retail store. Interstate batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of time plus 1% of money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and money back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is Episode 4. Um, so today on the podcast, we have Marcus Strange and Marcus is a bit of a different guest from some of the people who I've spoken to in previous weeks where Marcus has, uh, well, his full-time job is actually in the world of conservation. However, 
Um, that is not where it stops for Marcus. He spends uh, a great deal of his free time um, outside of his his regular job um, with other uh, conservation organizations other than what he works for donating his time um, to those and really in a, a bit of a different um, area um, from a, uh, a species uh, standpoint than, than the company or the organization that he works for. So, um, you know, we talk uh, about Marcus being an adult onset hunter um, and really the kind of aha moment or the the moment that sparked his love and passion for the outdoors. Um, And we get into a little bit about uh, the career change that Marcus had going from um, a career in law enforcement uh, into conservation and what that looked like along the way and how uh, he was able to get from, you know, point A to point B. Um, you know, it was a great conversation that I had with Marcus. It was something that I really enjoyed. So uh, I hope you guys, uh, enjoy. All right. On the line with me today, I have Marcus Strange. Marcus, how are you today? I'm good, Marcus. How are you? I'm doing well. It's a little weird, uh, talking to someone with the same name because it feels like you're speaking in the third person the whole time. Totally. Yep. Um, so actually in my very, uh, short stint, uh, podcasting here uh this is my first time interviewing someone who has their own podcast uh how does it feel to be on the other end of it um i actually love being on this end of it it's nice to be able to just kind of take off the producer the interview hat whatever whatever responsibilities you have and just answer questions man i love this i love being on this side of the microphone for sure well good good so I want to kind of start off and get a better understanding of where your love for conservation, for the outdoors, uh, where that came from. So I guess tell me about how you know you got started in the outdoors or what sparked the, the interest for it. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, it actually goes back uh, a long time before I actually started um, acting on those conservation values. So growing up, um, I grew up on the East coast, um, in a pretty kind of typical suburb. Um, we, we were about 30, 40 minutes outside of Baltimore, pretty close to DC. So, um, a lot of, a uh, lot of urban influences in my life. Um, however, my grandpa, um, was at the, the time he retired, he was the chief operating officer for Pennsylvania state parks. And he just, he had a great passion for the outdoors. I actually was just, he's 85 and I was just talking to him and uh, he said, I'm sitting on the front porch trying to identify all the birds I'm hearing. So <laughs> that's, just, that's awesome. Yeah. Just great guy. Absolutely love the outdoors. He is, he is my hero by far. If you ever come to my office or seen pictures of my office, I have, a ton of memorabilia on my bookshelves and half of it is stuff that he's given me. So we have a, a real special connection and bond. And he took every opportunity that was available in a very natural, very non-aggressive, non-pushy way to share his love of the outdoors with me. And like, like most kids, um, we, we get into what our friends are into and that was baseball and basketball. So I was, I was way, way into baseball and basketball and eventually figured out that I didn't like getting hit by fast rocks 
balls being thrown at me. And so I switched from baseball and solely focused on basketball. And uh, that became my whole life. And, you know, those opportunities and experiences that I had in the outdoors um, just kind of sat there and percolated for a little while. Um, and, and I, you know, I went on with life, um, went to school, got married, uh, got a job. And uh, that, that job kind of um, was what I thought my whole life was going to revolve around. And at the end of the day, I realized that I was incredibly unfulfilled. I, I felt this huge hole in me and I just kind of, kind of hit rock bottom there for a little bit. Not that anything, you know, was, you know, if you looked at it from the outside, you'd probably be like, your life is fine. You got a good paying job. You got a family, like you've graduated from school, like everything's good. And I just didn't, I just didn't feel whole. I didn't feel me. So quit that job and took a, just a, filler job working at a big box store, kind of, uh, you know, just bringing home the money while I could, but I was trying to figure out, you know, where's my life going. And, um, uh, my brother-in-law actually at the time, um, was, uh, wanting to go elk hunting and I'd never been hunting, let alone elk hunting. And he was like, Hey, you just want to come for a hike in the woods with me. It'll be a fun adventure. And, I said, yeah, sure. Uh, let's go. Um, this, you know, sounds like fun. I was kind of vaguely aware of hunting culture and, um, obviously living in Montana at the time, it was kind of all around me, but it wasn't something that I really was invested in. So, uh, yeah, we went, uh, got up super early, drove out and I, I won't ever forget this. He was like, Hey, roll your window down. And we were in the middle of this field, kind of driving out to the trailhead we rolled our windows down. He turned off the engine and I heard this sound and it's like burned into my memory at this moment. I heard the sound and I heard it again and again and again, and it was elk bugling and it was kind of rippling down out of this Canyon and like washing out over us in the, the meadow there. And I just like in that moment, my entire world changed like in, in a way that like, I don't really have the words to be able to, to share, but it, it changed in that moment. So what age were you when this started happening? <laughs> it's a great question. I had just turned 27. Okay. So you would probably fall in the category of, I've, I've heard the term adult onset hunter. Oh yeah, man. I wear that badge proud. I am full on <laughs> adult onset, adult onset hunter for sure. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, does, to me, it doesn't matter when you, you catch the bug, as long as you catch it at some point. Yep. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So you've had your first experience with, with hearing a bugling elk and you said that was so that kind of your aha moment, right? Yep. Yeah. So now you are a bit different than some of my other, um, guests where while not only are you practicing conservation outside of your job, but your job is actually with a conservation company. So, or a conservation organization. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah. Um, are you kind of wondering like how I got the job or what the job entails? Yeah. Because you went from a job that you, you know, you didn't necessarily like to, you know, just something to, to get you by. And then you kind of immersed yourself. It seems like, uh, in, in the world of conservation and the outdoors. Yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> um, I've, I've always been the, the type of person that, um, I may not always know what to do, but I'm, I'm definitely, 
going to figure out something to do and I'm going to move towards that target with the um, expectation that I may need to adjust course as time goes on. But man, once I figure out what that course is, it's like, you gotta, you're gonna have to chain me down with some really heavy chains to keep me from going towards it's it. It's full steam ahead. It, it is full steam ahead, man. And that was the thing, like in that moment, um, the spark was definitely reignited and all those experiences I had with my grandpa, um, you know, hikes and camps and whatnot that he took me on definitely all started like washing back over me. Um, I, I don't know exactly what the catalyst was where I said, you know, shoot, I could, I could make a living at this and, you know, make, make this passion uh, a career. But there, there was a point where I realized, um, that I could definitely make a, a living working in the outdoors. And I didn't know what that looked like exactly. So, um, I'm a, I'm a hands-on learner. So I started volunteering and the first group I reached out to because it was really the only conservation group I knew was the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And so I got on the local chapter and just started like helping out. And I, I was definitely the greenhorn in the group, but I knew a little bit about how to talk to people and I knew a little bit about how to be friendly. And so, you know, throw me into a banquet setting and I, I did pretty well. So I was volunteering with that. And then um, I just <laughs> I just started Googling uh, conservation organizations and jobs. And I started looking at what all the resumes like that they were, you know, the job descriptions. I started looking at the job descriptions and looking for what they were looking for. And I picked up on this trend that communication was a big key and I had no communication background. So my, my background was in law enforcement um, and I, I worked as a police officer. And that was the job I left. Um, and uh, so I was like, okay, how do I take that and get a job in conservation? Well, I'm not, I mean, I can like, I can talk. Like that's really what being a police officer is all about is being able to talk to people. Communication. Yep. Communication. So I can spin that, but I need some concrete things. So I took a job with the uh, Department of Education uh, for the state of Montana and worked myself um, in two years, I worked myself into a communications position where I was doing outreach and communication. So I was like, check, got that on the resume. Next step is like, how do I market myself? And it really was through volunteering. So I volunteered with, uh, you know, a bunch of different conservation organizations. And one of them was, uh, well, little, so a little backstory. I also started just applying to jobs because I was like, I can take rejection. I'm just going to start putting my name out there regardless of whether I'm qualified for these jobs or not. If I see a conservation job that I'm interested in, I'm going to apply to it. And one of the jobs I applied for was with my current job, the, the Montana Wildlife Federation. So I sent them a, <laughs> sent them a, a resume and I, I wrote a, what now I look back on as a, a terrible uh, cover letter. And uh, I got a phone call, which I was really excited about. And I was like, sweet, I'm at least going to get an interview. And it was my my first boss, Dave Chadwick. And I remember this very clearly. He said, hey, I don't want to hire you. And in my head, I'm like, well, why the F are you calling me then, man? <laughs> like, just to rub it in? Yeah. And I, I quickly pushed that emotion down. And I said, okay, well, what can I do for you, Mr. Chadwick? And he's like, I'm wondering if you want to volunteer for us. And again, that just like bubbled up like this anger of 
how dare you? (laughs) How dare you ask me to come work for you for free when you wouldn't give me a job? Um, And then I I forget whose quote this is, but the opportunity looks a lot like hard work popped into my head. And I was like, okay. I said, sure. What do you need me to do? So I started volunteering for him. And so I'm, I've got the job on the resume. I'm volunteering with this group. Um, I eventually became a board member uh, for them. And, you know, I was doing all these different things to make myself as appealing as possible. And I mean, I, this sounds like a long time frame, but this was all really in about two and a half years. So I was like, I was hustling. I was getting, trying to get a lot done. And uh, eventually uh, a job position opened up and um, I applied for it. And this time I, I got it. I'd, I'd done enough of the work and laid enough groundwork that I was uh, a qualified candidate. And so, yeah, took my, my first job in conservation three years ago now, and it's been a blast ever since. Well, that, I mean, that's a great story because, <clears throat> I mean, you went from, I mean, complete opposite end of the spectrum. You, yeah. go, you go elk hunting with your buddy one time, you hear the bugles, you catch the bug, and now you're like, okay. How do I, how do I turn this into something I can do all the time? And I mean, from start to finish, I mean, that's a great story because one little thing changed your entire outlook on not only your life, but your future, your career. I mean, everything it's, I mean, that kind of speaks to what the outdoors can do to people. Yeah, for sure. And that's one thing that I, I share with people is we don't need everybody to be a hunter. We don't need everybody to be an angler. We don't need honestly, everybody to you know, get into the outdoors the, the same amount that you and I love to do. But what we do need people to do is whatever that little spark is, listen to that spark, whether that's putting a bird feeder in your backyard so you can watch the different birds in your community, or it's, you know, turning your garden and, or sorry, your lawn into a wildlife friendly garden. Um, I mean, those are the things that we need people to be doing. Uh, whatever that little spark is, just listen to that spark. Yeah. It's amazing how, much of an impact like a single individual can have. I mean, that's what I, I yeah. kind of say at the end of my episodes is, you know, conservation starts with you. I mean, you don't have to do this big project or grandio- grandiose idea or something like that. I mean, just do little things. And, and over time, those things add up. Even again, if it's just like you said, in your own backyard. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I look at my grandpa, 85, sitting on the front porch, listening to birds. I mean, he's he's a conservationist. He's doing... He's doing what he loves, doing what he can, and, and he shares that with other people. So, I mean, yeah, every little bit helps. Yeah, and it's funny you kind of mentioned that you were at that point in your life where there was there seemed to be like a void, um, and you, mm-hmm. you thought back to all these times that you had spent with your with your grandfather and, and everything like that. And that, that kind of takes me back to, I mean, I, I, I grew up hunting and fishing. You know, I, I started at a pretty young age, um, but then I, I did all these things with my dad. Uh, and then 10 years ago, I lost my dad and it feels like, I mean, cause it was the same type of thing. Like I got into high school and college and sports just played a, a very big role in, in how I spent my time. Right. I mean, for you, you said it was baseball and basketball for me, it was baseball, basketball and football. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Midwest yeah. kid, so I'm sure, like you said, you're an East coast kid. So, I mean, pretty similar, uh, upbringings, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and then once, you know, when you're in high school, that stuff just kind of takes priority and precedent over everything else. Um, and then when my dad passed, I mean, that's when, yeah, you start to feel, you know, like nostalgic for those, for those times and those memories that you have when you're growing up. And yeah, I mean, I, when I got back into it, I 
got back into it and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those, those diverse experiences, whether it's sports or music or drama or, or whatever it is that a kid wants to get into, I, I would not be able to do my job at MWF if I didn't have the diverse experience um, set that I've had over my life. And so sometimes I hear my friends and I, I don't have kids, so I, I probably shouldn't say this, but sometimes I hear my, my friends who do have kids say, oh, I'm worried they're not going to love the outdoors. And I'm like, it, it doesn't matter. Like I didn't love the outdoors till I was 27, but I had people in my life who did and they set that example. And eventually it all circles back, man. Like um, if that, if that kid is going to love the outdoors, it'll, it'll show up in their life. What matters is that you show up in their life and you show up in a way that models a love for the outdoors. Um, and yeah. I, I'm a big fan of kids playing sports. I think it teaches you a lot. Oh, no, no question. I mean, the, the life lessons that you learn in sports, and I would say more from losing in sports is, yeah. is paramount to, to the upbringing of children. And I, and I understand that not all kids are going to be interested in sports and, and that's fine, but yeah. I can look back on so many turning points in my life where I leaned on things that I had been, uh, you know, learn things I'd been taught in sports, um, you know, obstacles that you had to overcome in sports. Um, and it just, I mean, it makes you mentally tough in my opinion. And it learned or it teaches you to, to deal with, um, Oh shoot. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, I guess like obstacles, it, uh, it helps you overcome those types of things. And yeah, I, I can't stress that enough how important sports are, um, yeah. to kids. So, Montana Wildlife Federation. So this is your your current job. So tell me about what you do with them. Oh, yeah. Uh, so what I do now is a, a little bit different than what I did initially. Um, initially, I was a uh, what we call a field coordinator. So I would coordinate the field work. I mean, it's a little bit on the nose with the job titles here. But yeah, so boots on the ground kind of stuff. Um, whether that was, you know, taking a, a piece of land and, you know, doing a, a cleanup project on it, uh, you know, all the way up to federal legislation for permanent protection. Um, that was kind of my job to coordinate um, the, the work for that in central Montana. Um, we, about a year ago, we started expanding our reach as an organization. We've, we've done a lot of growing and we've added more staff. And so about a year ago, um, I, I took on a new set of uh, responsibilities at work. So now I'm the, the program and partnership director for the Montana Wildlife Federation. And again, it's pretty on the nose. <laughs> I run our, our non-campaign uh, related programs. So things like our uh, Lead Free Montana initiative, um, our affiliate network. Um, I put on uh, a lot of... Uh, social events. So pint nights, movie nights, uh, things like that. Um, and then the partnership side of things is again, just fostering partnerships with government, civic, um, NGOs, individuals. Um, that's, that's what I do is I, I help us, um, gain the allies and, and maintain those friendships so that we can have good allies when it comes to, uh, doing the conservation work here in Montana that needs to get done. Yeah, that's great. Now you talked about, um, 
uh, lead free Montana. So, I yep. mean, so tell me a little bit more about that, that, cause I, I'd saw that, um, seen that on, uh, Montana wildlife federation on their website. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're able to find it. We're in the middle of a website overhaul. So it sounds like a lot get, of people are. Yeah. It, well, I mean, Hey man, when you're sitting around at home, it, you have time to, to dream and envision a, a better website for yourself. Yeah. So actually our, we have a great, uh, social media coordinator and she, has been working on it for a really long time and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be really, really cool to see. Um, but one of the things that like you were saying that's on there is our lead free initiative. Um, this was something that we started talking about a year ago. Um, it, you know, everybody has been, been seeing the news about all these birds, um, eagles in particular who are getting lead poisoning. And we started seeing some of those cases pop up in Montana. And there's just, uh, there's a mountain of literature and studies that have been done that show when a, a bullet passes through an animal, not only does it open up and mushroom up um, if it does its job right, but it also fragments and breaks apart. And, you know, some people will say, well, I got a, a clean pass through, but just in doing the research for this work that we're doing, there's so many um, x-rays out there that show these tiny particulates of lead that are left in the meat that are imperceptible to the human eye. And so um, our initiative is essentially asking people to voluntarily for wildlife and for people to, when they hunt, hunt with a non-lead alternative. Typically, copper is the most easy to find. Um, this, is not, this is not legislation. This is not a new rule. This is not something that we're going to uh, shame you if you decide that it's not something that you want to do. This is a, another step in the evolution of individuals as conservationists. And, and that's the way I look at it. Um, I hunted with lead ammunition for a long time. But once I was exposed to this information about how raptors, even ungulates, um, coyotes, bears like there's there's this growing amount of ev evidence that shows that all these um, animals are being impacted by the lead that hunters are leaving on the landscape and if we do our job right we all hope that it's just one bullet that we have to send down range at an animal well even that one bullet can leave a, a lasting impact on the life of an animal so why not take that one bullet you know out of the equation you know use a copper round and uh, you know, do a, a little bit to help the ecosystem that we all that we all use with these animals. Um, yeah, it's been it's been really well received. I'm really proud of uh, the amount of people that have committed to doing it. And you can actually, on our website, we have a non-lead pledge that you can sign. And we've got some more things that we're as soon as all this COVID craziness kind of calms down, uh, we actually want to get out and, and give people the opportunity to get their hands on some non-lead ammunition and test it out at a range and see how it works for them before they make the switch. Um, I've been very pleased with how it's performed for me. Um, and I'm very confident in, in using it now. I had, I had some questions before, but um, yeah, it's just been a, a really great initiative and something we're really proud of and excited about. No, that's great. I mean, anytime that you can take a step forward uh, in terms of protecting um, and, and not having a negative residual effect when harvesting an animal is great. I mean, so 
when you talked about like the trace elements of the lead that are being left behind from mm-hmm. from the bullets that we're sending at at animals here, how long? Or I mean, I'm not sure if you know this, but how long? I guess are those, you know, fragments of lead. Um, bef- I mean, how long are they left in the ground, or how long do they continue to have an effect for? You know, my my understanding is that it's. Um... And I don't have the exact number here, but it's a, a lifetime for you and me. Like the lead that you and I put out on the landscape will remain there. Um, I'd have to look. I, I'm hesitant to say that it's there permanently. There may be a shelf life for it. But definitely in the in my lifetime, the lead that I put on the landscape will still be there. Um, and, and that's the thing is, um, you know, if I can if I can say one thing to people, it's this is, this is not about removing all the lead off the landscape because um, we're not going to be able to do that. This is about mitigating my, my impact moving forward because we, we, um, we can only do good with the information that we have moving forward. We can't reach back into the past and, and change things in the past. So don't beat yourself up if you were you know, shooting lead before, and I definitely don't want to beat you up if you were using lead before totally fine. Um, but you know, this is some new information that we can take and and do a little bit better with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anything that you can do, um, again, to, to take a step in the right direction, um, you know, is great and better late than never, especially on something like this. Yeah. So with, um, the MWF, um, I know you guys have a lot of different, um, campaigns and things like that going on. So, for listeners who are in Montana, how can they um, get involved uh, or how can they help out with certain projects for the MWF? It's a great question. The best thing that people can do is go sign up for our emails. We send out emails when we need help with habitat projects like a fence pole. We send out emails when there's a political issue we need to mobilize people on. Um, we what, what we don't do is we don't send you emails on unimportant things. I I help write the emails, our social media uh, coordinator, Sonia, she's writing a, you know, a ton of content daily. Uh, we, the last thing we want to do is put out unimportant content. So every email that you get from us is going to be important. It's going to be about something that matters. And uh, that's probably the best way to stay on top of all the different things we have going on. Um, follow us on social media as well. That's another great way. Our, our Facebook page has all of our events and um, everything that we have going on also gets funneled onto Facebook at some point. Yeah. And that's, I've noticed that too, is that more and more um, conservation groups are just using social media to stay in touch with their members. Um, Yeah. So as the director of program and partnership, um, what types of programs are you guys using to help recruit um, new members um, for the, uh, for your organization? Man, that is a, a fantastic question. Um, we, we've got a few different ones going on and I'm hoping that we can kind of, um, as I'm building out this, this job description for myself, uh, one of the things I'm hoping we can do is kind of bring, um, our, our three programs into kind of one umbrella program right now. It's kind of just hodgepodge all over the place, but the things that we're doing off the top of my head that I'm passionate about in terms of recruiting new hunters is we have every year. A, a women's only um, outreach event where we teach hard skills to to women that want to um, learn about bow hunting or want to learn about 
backpacking or they want to learn whatever it might be. Fly fishing was the one that we were going to do during COVID, but that got canceled. Um, yeah, so we we do that every year. And then we also have a second segment of that where it's kind of like a, a women's roundtable and they're able to discuss, you know, the challenges that they face because quite frankly, they face a lot more hurdles in uh, getting involved in the outdoors than us men do. Um, it's just, it's just a fact. And so um, I, I love that we started this program. It's been really well received and we've actually seen um, a bunch of the women that were involved in um, that evening of, of learning and discussion go on. And um, I've got text a bunch of photos of, you know, women shooting their first elk or catching their first fish. And it's really cool to see how um, they're able to connect with each other, um, make new friendships, learn new skills, and then carry those into the field. Um, the other thing that we do, um, and this is one of the things that I'm really passionate about, is we have a network of affiliate clubs that we work with. So we have a staff of nine people, and people often wonder how a staff of nine does what we do. Well, the secret, folks, is that we have a lot of help, and it's those affiliate clubs that really step up to the plate and do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to the conservation work. Um, and so for me, when I think about R3 type stuff, what I do is I support our affiliates, whether that's with funding or with, you know, being there and, and slinging burgers or, you know, helping with a, uh, a work project um, where they're doing the R3 work. And, and that's been very successful. A lot of our affiliate clubs are uh, bow hunting clubs, and they do fantastic. They do a fantastic job of reaching out to new hunters and bringing them in and introducing them to archery. And um, it's it's been cool to see people show up at these events as a, a new person and and watching their evolution over the last three years as they become a bow hunter and get really passionate about conservation in the outdoors. So those are a couple of the ways that we support our three initiative type stuff. Now, are you seeing a, um, well, a lot of groups are, but are you seeing a, um, a real negative effect with, um, obviously this pandemic going on with recruiting new members? You know, I, that's a great question. I don't know the number off the top of my head that we've seen, um, over the last three, four months. Um, I think like most conservation groups, we're a 501c3. And so donations are obviously down, but I, I wouldn't say that's hitting us more than anybody else. Um, I think our members are, are pretty stalwart and I just have to give a, a huge shout out to the rest of the staff. Um, I, I feel like, uh, sometimes I'm just the party planning guy because I get to go, to brewery nights and I get to go to archery shoots and uh, they, they in the, the COVID time have done a freaking amazing job of moving things forward. Like I was just um, chatting with one of the staff about uh, the great America Outdoor Act. I think I got that right. Yeah. And WCF and both of those things have been moving forward during uh, COVID and our, our staff lead Alec on those issues. He's been crazy busy during this time. So in, in, when you ask, like, have I noticed a change during COVID, um, a little bit, but we've been, we've been working really hard and we've been getting a lot of, sh a lot of stuff done. And, 
yeah, I think our members see that and um, they stay with us and they support us during this time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's great too, because yeah, there's this unprecedented time for a lot of us right now mm -hmm. and to be able to continue to move, um, legislation like, um, like you just mentioned forward at this time is it speaks volumes to, you know, all the different conservation orgs that are out there that are, you know, all striving for the same thing. Yep. So we, this is where I can transition a little bit here. So this is where I think you kind of separate yourself from, from some of the other people that we've spoke to, um, oh who are, who are average conservationists. So a lot of other people that I've spoken to have quote unquote regular jobs. And then they, they spend a lot of their free time and, you know, weekends and things like that, um, devoting it to conservation. So not only do you work for a conservation org, but you are spending a lot of your free time, um, with conservation as well. So you touched, <laughs> you, you touched on, uh, being a member of RMEF. So what other, uh, organizations do you belong to? And I guess what's your role in those? Yeah. So, uh, currently I had to write this down one time cause I was losing track. Um, I currently volunteer with our Elkhorn chapter of RMEF, which is just our local, um, com community RMEF chapter. I'm on the state resource team for Montana for RMEF. And that basically is just a committee of volunteers that kind of oversees the bigger, picture stuff for RMEF in the state. So we, we help out with banquets across the state. If there's a, a committee that's low on people, uh, members of the state resource team will go and help put on the banquet. Um, we plan the summer rendezvous. If you've never been to an RMEF uh, summer rendezvous, you definitely need to go to one. They are a blast, a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so I do that for RMEF. And then um, I'm on the board of the Western Bear Foundation which is a conservation and bear advocacy group. And um, they do fantastic work. It's, it's uh, as the name implies, just the Western states. So um, we kind of keep to this side of the Rockies mostly. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm, on, I'm on the board for them. And, and that's a fantastic organization. They really do a lot of good work. They do things like bear spray giveaways. Um, they do a fund for people who have been attacked by bears. So if you have medical costs that have been incurred by a, a negative encounter with a black bear, grizzly bear, you can apply to that fund and get funding to help with medical costs. Um, and then honestly, we fund a lot of uh, mitigation projects. So there's over, over here, there's a, a, a watershed called the Blackfoot. And in that watershed, uh, there's a community that does a lot of ranching. And so we're putting in some electric fences over in that area. Um, and then I'm on the uh, regional, I'm a regional committee member for 2% for conservation. So just helping move the mission of 2% for conservation uh, forward. So yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's a little bit about what I do in my free time. <laughs> So I'm going to ask for a bit more of an explanation on the 2% for conservation, yeah. just because obviously um, being in partner with 2% for conservation on this podcast, um, explain what a committee member does for 2%. You know, uh, I, I'd like to say that I'm Jared Frazier's gopher, um, which is <laughs> not, <laughs> not completely true. Um, 
<laughs> no, uh, but but kind of that idea, you know, the regional committee members in in whatever region they're in, their job is to help move the mission of two percent forward. So for me, I, I look at that like whatever whatever Jared and Calvin need um, to help in Montana, I'm there to do. Whether that's showing up at an event, whether that's recruiting new business and individuals. Um, that's honestly like on paper, that's the biggest thing, right? The biggest thing for a community member is to do outreach and recruit new businesses and new members. But um, I kind of read between the lines of like, there's, there's more to do in your area than just recruit people, right? Like there's showing up, speaking up, doing, doing a little bit extra. And so at least here in Montana, I try to jump in and help out wherever I can, if it's something 2% related. Yeah. And that's, that's a great thing. And obviously that's one of the reasons I was so drawn to this podcast and the idea of the podcast was everything that 2% stands for. Um, I mean, the average conservationist, my company has just, uh, recently been certified. So I'm excited about that and, and what that means to, to the world of conservation. Yeah, it's incredibly cool. I'm glad that, um, you're doing this podcast because we do, sometimes get lost in the um the figureheads and the vips and the the you know people on tv that get a lot of the attention but that's honestly like and and those people are important and they serve their place and i i enjoy um partaking in what they have to share but it's the people that are working a nine to five job and then going out and volunteering their time in the evening and dragging their kids kids to a fence pole and and those are the people that are really making this work happen. And that's who this work is all about. It's who it's for. And so I love that there's this podcast that's highlighting people like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's the type of person that I wanted to, to celebrate, right? When I started the average conservationist, because I think that there's, there's so many people out there who, like you just said, spend their, their nights, their weekends, um, doing things for conservation to, uh, you know, leave things better than they found them um, to make sure that they're there for these generations to come. And if you if you look at you know whatever conservation organization it is, it's it's the organization that gets the the recognition if if something um, you know good happens or, or anything like that, and and rightfully so, like you said. But it's it's the boots on the ground, it's the it's the members, it's the individuals inside of the organization that that I really wanted to celebrate. So yeah. And it's funny with, with the podcast. I mean, you hear so many different podcasts where people are speaking to, you know, fairly well-known names or, or, you know, you know, people that you recognize. And with this podcast, um, you know, I have to really do a lot of legwork prior to, (laughs) prior to, uh, to, to talking to you guys just because, you know, I mean, if someone were to look up Marcus Strange or even Marcus Ewing for that matter, I mean, there's not a lot out there on us. Right. And, and, and the work that we've done. So I think it's a, it's a great thing. And I'm, I'm really glad that you guys are able to come, come on and speak to me because, you know, your guys' stories are what need to be heard and what need to, to be represented and, and help motivate, you know, people that maybe aren't spending uh, the time that they want to uh, giving back to conservation. Yeah. And I just have to, I have to highlight an example of that. Um, so 2% certified business, Dark Mountain, um, out of Billings, Montana, they know one of the owners, Andrew noticed, uh, on some BLM land near his house that someone had been dumping garbage. And so he, uh, organized a cleanup. We're going to go clean up all that garbage. 
this coming weekend. I mean, that's the kind of stuff, that's the kind of stuff that moves conservation forward. I mean, there's people up on Capitol Hill that are, you know, getting up in front of big, scary politicians and pushing out uh, bills and legislation, but it's, it's honestly businesses that are getting their, their folks together on a weekend to uh, go clean up their local community. I mean, that's, that's powerful. That, that is change making. And that's what we all need to see and do more of. Yeah. And there's a tangible difference when you're done with something like that, right? I mean, you can see the work that you do and, and for a lot of people, I think that's what they need is they need to be able to see the difference that they're making. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think all of us are, you know, frustrated at times with the disrepair of our public lands. Um, but in, in helping kind of coordinate this project with Andrew, when I called the BLM and told him, Hey, we just, we don't want anything. We just want your permission and just give you a heads up. We're going to go clean this up. The guy was virtually in tears. And it was a good reminder to me that, you know, our public lands, you know, we, we talk all the time about being public land owners, but yep. Yeah. Got the shirt on. Yeah. But, but, uh, you know, how often do we take the initiative and proactively take care of our land? I mean, if it, if it truly is our land, um, how, how proactive are we being in owning that moniker? And I just, I think about like these, these, uh, public servants who are understaffed under budget and they just get beat up over and over and over again. And, you know, if they close the trail down because it needs maintenance, next thing you know, people are losing their minds. They don't want to close that trail down. They, they don't want people to lose access to that trail, but you know, they got to do what they got to do. And I just, I really applaud um, specifically Andrew and Dark Mountain for taking the initiative for this cleanup, but also anybody else that's being proactive and, and managing and helping out manage their public lands because it's those little things that will make the difference in keeping access open for all of us to enjoy the things that we love to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's very well said. Can I get off my soapbox now? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. That, that needed to be said. So one thing that, that I find when talking to, to people at different pint nights, um, banquets, things like that is, you know, for someone who wants to get involved with conservation, I mean, there's so many organizations out there, you know, what is your advice to, to someone who wants to take a more active role, um, in terms of joining different conservation groups? Cause it seems like some people, they're not quite sure how to handle it and, and they don't want to exclude themselves. So they, they join as many groups as possible. Right. And, and what is your advice to those people, uh, in terms of joining groups and, you know, how can they make a better choice, uh, or make a, a good choice to join the right groups? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I will say if you interviewed me probably about a year ago, the list of, of, uh, conservation groups I was actively volunteering with was significantly longer and, I, I hit a point where I realized that I was um, trying to pour from an empty cup, so to speak. Like I was giving so much time and energy. And I, I don't say that to pat myself on the back, but I, I literally every night, um, and my, my wife being the, the wise and compassionate uh, spouse that she is, very kindly pointed out to me that I wasn't really enjoying the volunteering anymore. And it was kind of... Um, <laughs> 
sucking me dry a little bit. Sure. So, um, yeah, I've, I've had to do exactly what you're talking about, reevaluate where I'm allocating my time. Um, I think the first thing I would say uh, to someone is, what are you passionate about? I mean, what, what is the thing about conservation that just really gets you excited? Um, I know some people, for them, that's the politics side of it. So going and, and volunteering uh, with RMEF where you're just, you know, fundraising and putting on banquets, which is super important and very necessary, that might not be your thing. And so you, you may not get as much fulfillment from doing that as you would say volunteering with, um, there's a group here in Montana that's one of our affiliates. It's Public Land and Water Access Association. Uh, they do a lot more on the political side as far as like, you know, digging into documents and, you know, um, looking at uh, legislation, like that's kind of their jam and they, they like to do that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think just identify what you're passionate about and, and be honest with yourself about what that is and then look around in your local community. And I would, I would highly recommend looking local first. There's so many local rod and gun clubs, so many local uh, archery clubs, so many local, you name it, clubs that um, it makes me sad to think about, but they're, they're disappearing because they don't have the members that they used to. Back in the heyday, man, they were the ones that were getting stuff done. They were the ones that were moving conservation forward. But as we've, you know, progressed as a society, those organizations are valued less and less, but they still are trying to do good work. They're still trying to get things done and they need people to get involved with them. So I, I like to say to, to look local and support local conservation organizations. And if you don't like the stuff that they're doing or you don't love um, how the organizations run, best way to change that, get on the board. They always need board members. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I agree completely, right? Especially with the part about joining um, local chapters because I think that's where you can have the biggest impact is is right at home. Yep. Yeah. So 2020, obviously it's been kind of a messed up year. Uh, it's, oh man. It's derailed a lot of people's plans and, and, you know, out of state hunts and things like that. So what, you know, what does, what does 2020 look like for uh, your hunting schedule? You know, I, Marcus, I, I am just the dumbest, luckiest guy in the entire world. When I think about my life in the outdoors and I think about uh, my life in conservation, like, and I don't, I don't say this to be like overly humble, but I don't know how I have the job that I have. Like why, why I, why I get to do what I get to do is just amazing. And I think about that in terms of my hunting, like I live in Montana. Like, I mean, it is, it is the place that people save up for years to come and hunt. So my hunting schedule, um, I, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but it's looking pretty good. <laughs> Not looking too bad. Um, I've already spent, uh, I have to go back and look at my journal, seven or eight days, uh, hunting turkeys and bears combined. I mean, who gets to do that, right? Like yeah. that's, that's pretty sweet. Well, especially this time, and, you know, with all this, with the pandemic going on, I think it's actually yeah. had given a lot more people the opportunity to spend more time in the woods, which is great. Yeah. And it's, it's been pretty awesome. So I've already done uh, quite a bit of turkey and bear hunting, which has been fantastic. Uh, this fall um, in Montana, our archery antelope season starts 
um, right around August 15th. So I'll start archery antelope hunting at that point. Um, I am uh, attempting to hunt with a, a recurve for the first uh, time in my life. And yeah, I so, noticed you make it harder on yourself there. I, obviously, I, I follow you on Instagram and I see you out there shooting <laughs> uh, shooting your bow. And I'm like, man, why is this guy doing this to himself? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I got used to losing during those uh, high school days of sports that we were talking about. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just used to it. I don't know anything else. I just got to keep losing. No, um, I, that's a good, a good, a great question. Um, and without belaboring the point, I last, last year, I, um, one day I was sitting under a tree after blowing a stock on an elk with my compound and I was pissed off and angry. And all of a sudden I just was like, man, I'm not hunting for the right reasons. Like I'm not hunting to hunt. I'm not hunting to connect with nature. I'm not hunting to be around these animals. Like I am hunting to try to shoot something. And obviously, like everybody's probably like, well, of course, that's what you do when you hunt. <laughs> but uh, I think, at least for me, why I started hunting and why I want to hunt is this holistic experience that's more than just, you know, releasing an arrow or squeezing a trigger. And I realized that uh, my my compound, in a way, had become like uh, like training wheels almost. Like I was so confident in it. And I knew that if I had an elk within 70 yards, that, that I was going to be able to shoot it. And I was just like, so focused on getting to 70 yards of an elk and shooting an elk that I wasn't enjoying hunting anymore. So I switched over to the recurve and man, it has been a blast. I highly recommend it to anybody that's considering it. And, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, walking around with an incredibly lighter weapon this fall. Yeah, no, I I was just kind of obviously giving you a hard time there. No, I, I have an immense amount of respect for people who make the choice to use um, a traditional bow or uh, and not a compound because it your effective kill range is what, 40, 45 yards at, at the most if you are super, super comfortable and shoot a ton of arrows with it where like you just said with the compound you know a lot of guys will not be afraid to let an arrow fly at you know 65 70 yards at an elk uh, so no congratulations to you i wish you the best <laughs> of luck with that i know while i haven't hunted elk i'm gonna stick to stick to my compound <laughs> hey man i i've i love that and i think i think whatever um whatever gives you the experience that you're wanting to have that's the experience you should chase so you know, I had, I had many, many wonderful years using my compound and I absolutely loved it. And, um, there's a lot of sentiment still attached to it, but I, for me, it was the right decision and, uh, don't, don't congratulate me yet because, uh, we still haven't got to September. I'm sure probably about by September 5th or 6th, I'll be ready to snap that thing over my knee, but we'll, uh, we'll carry on. Yeah. All part of that losing again, like we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Marcus. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking some time to sit down with me today. I really enjoyed speaking to you and I wish you nothing but uh, luck with your uh, traditional bow this fall. Thank you. I appreciate it, Marcus. It was good being on here. Thank yeah. you. All right. Take care. Thank you. Yep. All right. A big shout out to Marcus for taking some time. Uh, join the podcast today and, and tell us about his story. Uh, I'd also like to thank 
uh, our partners, Stone Glacier and 2% for Conservation. Uh, you can find Stone Glacier uh, online at stoneglacier.com. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation, uh, including Stone Glacier, uh, that you should support when you're shopping for your various gear um, or coffee or guiding services or really anything that you can think of. I also encourage you guys to give 2% for Conservation a follow on social media where it's going to be uh, a lot of very uh, positive conservation-driven content that's coming out of their uh, various feeds. Uh, so again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, uh, you can find them on their various social medias or on their website, fishandwildlife.org. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Stay safe, and remember that conservation starts with you.